was fine. Anyway, yeah, it's really good to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Pete and Sammy. It's um, yeah, a real honor. Love uh, this community. I listen to your podcast, and it's just exciting to come and share with you this morning. And actually, uh, what I want to share with you about is something we've already been stepping into, which is the presence of God. And I wonder if you can think of moments in your life where you've been so overwhelmed by a sense of God's presence, a sense of his closeness. I can think back to a couple of examples. Firstly, when I was 11 years old, um, going to this conference called New Wine, and I'd grown up in the church. My dad um, is a vicar, leads a church, he's retired now. But, um, so I knew all the stories, I knew all about God. But I remember going to this uh, conference called New Wine, and uh, stepping into one of the meetings, and there's about 1,000 people, and people were just worshipping, you know, as a band, much like this morning, leading. And what struck me was that here are a group of people who weren't singing about an idea, a concept, singing about this kind of distant God that they'd heard about. They were singing to someone that they knew, someone that they had relationship with. And I remember just being overwhelmed by this understanding, this sense that I could know God. I could know him. And I remember being prayed for and filled with the Spirit. And uh, at, at 11 years old, it was like I, I tasted something that was profoundly life-changing, that actually nothing else the world could ever give me would come as close to, or be as amazing as what I'd experienced in that moment. And I remember coming home saying to my parents, you know, I, I've got to learn the guitar because I want to be able to worship God in my room. And they signed me up for violin lessons, which... Uh, <clears throat> wasn't quite what I had in mind, and after about two months of trying and failing miserably at that, I began to play the guitar, and I'd, I'd just spent hours, hours in my room worshiping God, because it was so much fun, it was so exciting, it was so transforming to be in His presence. A few years ago, I remember going to a, uh, the maximum secure prison in Texas, and the prisons in America are absolutely crazy, and uh, I remember going in, and I was asked to lead worship, and there was 500 men in this kind of big hall. I remember thinking, how is this going to work? You know, here's a room full of some of the worst uh, criminals in the United States of America, men who had uh, murdered, raped, abused, destroyed lives, stolen, corrupt, corrupted so many things. And in many ways here, one sense you could say was the scum of the earth. Those who, you'd, you know, you'd think were just full of evil so far removed from God. I was like, how, how is this going to work? I remember the, the guy who was doing our sound was serving a 99-year prison sentence. You know, you don't ask what someone's done <laughs> to get 99 years. And I remember that, you know, whatever the sound was like, you know, I was just going to say it's the best sound I've ever had. You know, I'm not going to suggest any changes or tweaks. <coughs> and uh, I remember, it's one of the things that I'll never forget, leading worship, leading that song, Amazing Grace, and just seeing these men begin to worship. This one man just raising his hands high, tears streaming down his face as he sang Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound to save a wretch like me. You know, in the place of such brokenness, desperation, experiencing a sense of God's profound love, his mercies, a new chance, a new day, and experiencing God's presence and so, for me, that's what I'm about. I want to be someone who, who learns to live in God's presence. And basically, the simple thing I want to share with you this morning is this, that our purpose is found in the presence of God. 
Our purpose is found in the presence of God. You know, firstly, our purpose is, is to worship God. That's what we've been created for. We're not kind of an accident of science, a cosmic mistake. Our lives are not meaningless. Our lives have a purpose, and that is to worship and glorify God. There's a thing called the Westminster Catechism, and it's a way that they used to teach and train people in doctrine and theology before people could read, and you'd learn questions, and you'd learn set responses. And one of the questions was this, what is the chief end of humankind? Kind of a big question. And the response that people would learn was this. The chief end of humankind is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It is what we've been created for, to glorify Him, to live lives that respond to His love, that bring Him pleasure. But actually, the amazing reality is as we glorify, we get to enjoy God. Enjoy relationship with him. And we see right through the scriptures from beginning to end that as God would reveal himself, as he'd make himself known, people would respond in worship. It's like they couldn't help it. Abraham, Genesis 12, when he has this incredible encounter with God and this covenant is made that Abraham is going to be a father to many nations, a blessing to the nations. Abraham responds by building an altar and offering up worship. Moses, he has this call on his life to lead the people of Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt, into the promised land, but so that the people of Israel could worship God. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and as they're led through the Red Sea, Miriam, Moses' sister, leads the way with singing and worship. God saved the people of Israel so that they might be able to worship him. King David, when the Ark of the Covenant was returning to Jerusalem, the Ark that um, represented, symbolized the presence of God, this holy, holy thing. As this kind of great procession happens and the Ark of the Covenant is being returned to its rightful place in Jerusalem, David, the king, begins to dance in a linen ephod before the ark, dancing like a crazy person. And you can imagine his wife, Michael, uh, or Michael. I, I always feel like I need to say it, pronounce it Michael because calling someone's wife Michael feels a bit weird to me. But anyway, <coughs> Michael, um, she's there and she's mortified. Oh, my goodness, the king of Israel dancing like a lunatic in front of all these servant girls. And she really has a go at him. And he says, no, I'll become even more undignified than this. Because he, he understood a sense of something of God's glory, his worth, and he couldn't contain it. He just couldn't hold it in. It kind of worked its way out through crazy dancing. It isn't a shame that sometimes our church services can be so kind of structured and rigid and lacking a sense of freedom when you know, Saturday night at the nightclub, everyone's dancing like crazy. You know, perhaps sometimes we need to recapture a sense of that joy, excitement in our worship in church. Job. Job, this amazing man who was wealthy, he was highly respected in the culture, um, educated, very significant man. And slowly, everything begins to be taken away from him. His, his livestock, his possessions, and then ultimately, his children are killed. And as the servant comes to break this horrific news, the death of his loved ones, his children, Job falls to his knees. He tears his robes. And it says in Job 1 that he begins to worship. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. He understood that even in the lowest of depths, he still 
needed to worship God. It's the only thing actually he could do in the midst of the most agonizing pain was, God, I worship you. You're all I have. Mary, as a teenage girl, angel Gabriel turns up and says, you're going to conceive miraculously. That's a pretty big deal in itself. You know, the virgin teenage girl is going to conceive. And then she's told that the child you're going to carry is going to be the savior of the world, the Messiah, the one that all of Israel had been longing for, waiting for, and you're going to carry this child. She must have absolutely freaked out. What does she do? She begins to worship. She offers up the Magnificat. She can't contain the wonder of this truth. When the wise men are led to the manger and they see this Christ, this baby, this child lying in a manger, they fall to their knees and they worship. The disciples, as they hang around with Jesus and they realize that here is not just an impressive rabbi, a good teacher, but here is the Messiah, the hope of the nations. They begin to worship. And you go right to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and we see an insight, a glimpse of heaven. And there are the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the multitudes of angels, all of creation circling, gathering around the throne. And there at the center of the throne is the lamb looking as if it were slain, Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, for eternity, we have been called, designed, created to worship God. Our purpose in life is to worship God to worship God. And Jesus said himself, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So our purpose is to worship. But, you know, also, our purpose is found in his presence. Our purpose is found in his presence. Worship is about an encounter of his presence. C.S. Lewis said, you know, God in commanding us to worship him is also allowing us to enjoy him. And that actually in worship, we should find such a sense of joy, of intimacy, of life, of hope. You know, it's the one thing that perhaps sets apart the Christian faith from any other religion or idea that God has made himself known. There's so many religions, people seeking, searching to discover God. And yet we believe that our God sought out us. He sent his son so that we could know him, we could experience him, and we could share the load with him. He wants to do life with you, to walk with you, to know you, to be there with you in all that you're walking through. You're not alone. You're not alone. God is with you. And uh, in the book of John, John 4, this kind of famous scripture, particularly around this idea of worship, we see this amazing conversation Jesus has with this Samaritan woman. And, you know, just to understand it, this Samaritan woman goes to collect water from a well in the heat of the day. Why is she there in the heat of the day? No one would collect water in the middle of the day in the hottest you know, sun. Well, she's there because she's an outcast. She's embarrassed. She's ashamed. This village have rejected her because she's had so many husbands. So she wants to go collect her water when no one is going to disturb her. And as she's collecting water, Jesus, a Jewish man, begins a conversation with her. Now, we need to understand that culturally, Jesus was smashing through so many taboos. Firstly, a man to speak to a woman just wouldn't have happened in a kind of public setting like that. But secondly, Jesus as a Jew would never begin a conversation with a Samaritan. So this lady would have been shocked 
And Jesus begins to ask her for some water. If you want to turn, it's in uh, John 4, verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands, and the man that you're now living with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, here Jesus completely redefines the geography of worship. No longer is worship to be found simply in a temple in Jerusalem, a place made of stones. But actually, we can now experience God everywhere. And actually, our worship is found in and through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, no longer was it to be about regulations, rules, traditions, techniques. It was about a relationship with a person. And you know, this is completely life-changing for us, that now worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Wherever you are, we can experience God. We can worship with Him. We can commune with Him. And it's encouraging to know that we can meet God, obviously, when we gather on a Sunday morning, but in so many other contexts. You know, that God doesn't just speak to us when we're reading our Bibles or when we're praying intensely. That actually, when we're out with our friends at the pub or when we're watching a movie or when we're around the dinner and dining table with our families or um, <coughs> going for a walk or commuting to work or in a very difficult, tense meeting, we can know and experience God's love. There's an old um, monk called Brother Lawrence. And he, he uh, wrote this amazing little book called Practicing the Presence of God. And he wanted to teach himself to be able to commune with God, to be one with God, even when he was doing things like washing the dishes. You know, so a question maybe it's worth asking yourself is, how mindful are you of Christ? Because the truth is, sometimes I get to the end of a day and I think, God, I, I barely thought about you. I barely invited you into my decisions or to my goings on. And actually, one of the things I want to grow in and learn is just to be communing with God. You know, maybe as you're walking to be praying, I'm trying to uh, spend less time listening to the radio when I'm driving and more time praying or try and develop holy habits, whatever they are, that you can just be mindful, reminding yourself that this day I want to punctuate it with connections with God. Because God is wanting to speak to you, wanting to um, release his presence and begin to shape you and to do life with you. You know, the truth is, we often view worship <coughs> and our walk with God in one of two ways. Often I think we can fall into the trap of thinking of it like a task. 
You know, something we have to do. We have to earn God's love. We have to impress him. We have to act in a certain way. You know, sometimes what happens is we get so caught up, gosh, I've got to tithe, I've got to attend church, I've got to do prayer meetings, I've got to do my Bible, whether it's Bible in a year or whatever, I've got to um, help out, volunteer, I've got to be generous with, you know, those on the margins of society. And the danger is when we begin to think of worship in this way, there's something we do, we place ourselves at the center of our worship. And our worship is only as good as the offering that we bring. And actually what ultimately happens is it leads to exhaustion. And disillusionment and cynicism. You're trying to shout at someone, come on, worship more. It just doesn't work. You know, I remember um, growing up in this uh, youth group. You saw a picture of us <coughs> rehearsing. Not the one in the pants. Just try and blot that one out of the memory. But um, I remember it was a Friday night. We'd be meeting, and I was sort of 15 years old. And, you know, it's Friday night. There's about 60 of us in the room. No one was really thinking about, you know, the wonder of a Savior, you know, the transcendence and the imminence of Christ. We're thinking about the girls that we fancied and were trying to chat up after the kind of youth meeting. And obviously, one of our youth leaders had had a particularly terrible week. And she just let loose. You know, she stopped a song. My friend was leading the worship, and she said, I can't believe this. Don't you know what God has done for you? Jesus died on a cross for you. Can't you at least sing with a bit more passion? This is so appalling. If Jesus was here, would you look so bored? And then she rushed out the door, slammed the door, and left us there. And we're like, whoo. And my, uh, my poor friend who was leading worship kind of after a while said, well, let's, um, let's sing another song. You know, he sang another song, and this time, everyone... <laughs> hands in the air, but the truth is none of us were really worshipping. We were just terrified that if she came back, she'd lynch us. (laughs) Now the truth is, some of you here, you might feel this sense of pressure. Maybe it's a pressure you've put on yourself, but it's not a pressure God is putting on you. He's inviting you in. Worship is not a task, it's a gift. It's a gift. We cannot worship without God's initiating love, without his spirit who opens our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. And it's through Jesus and uh, the mercies and the forgiveness he brings that we can enter into relationship with a loving heavenly father. And when we begin to see worship as a gift, something that replenishes, that restores, that brings healing, that brings hope, that brings perspective, that uh, brings life and joy, excitement and adventure, suddenly everything changes because we realize in God's presence is life, pleasures evermore. Our purpose is found in God's presence. So kind of two questions I want to leave you with. You know, if, if our purpose is found in this relationship with God, this real relationship with God. Question I want to ask you, and I've been asking myself, you know, well, what is at the center of your life? What is at the center of your life? Is it this relationship with Christ, or are there other things going on? You know, because we all worship something. If worship is our purpose, humankind can't help but worship. But the question is, what? Are you worshipping?
And if you follow the kind of trail of your money and your finances or your time and your resources, you'll begin to see what it is that you worship. But the truth is, unless it's Jesus, then we're always going to be left with a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense of something is missing. I was talking earlier about Moses leading the people of Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt. And this kind of big hope of the, the promised land, this land that God had promised them. And in Exodus 33, we see Moses has been up the Mount of Sinai, and he's had this incredible encounter with God where God has given him the Ten Commandments on this kind of rock. Can you imagine that, you know, for Moses? Oh, my goodness. Wow. And I can just imagine him sort of carrying these heavy things back down the mountain, like, when the people see this, when the people see what God has done, that God has spoken to us, that God has given us these kind of rules or, or even more than that, a way of living that's going to bring life and blessing to us. And as he gets closer, he begins to hear cheering and singing and a noise. And he's devastated to look to see the people of Israel worshipping a golden cow, a golden calf. And it's God who's provided again and again. I mean, what, what more could he do to show that he was faithful and loving? He led them out of captivity. He provided for them water from a rock, manna. You know, when they got bored of bread, he provided quail, meat. Everything that they needed, he provided. And yet, so quickly, so readily, they ditched a lot of it to worship a golden calf. And Moses is heartbroken and God is heartbroken. And in Exodus 33, you see this exchange between God and Moses. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. You know, God is saying that I promised you this land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to send an angel to drive out all the invading armies, the, you know, the enemies that might try and attack you. I'm going to give you what I promised you. But I'm not going with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And it's said that the people began to mourn because they realized they might have everything that they've been dreaming of. But if God's presence wasn't with them, then they had nothing. You know, I love this book title that says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You know, so I ask you, as I ask myself, is it Jesus, only Jesus, or are we kind of Jesus plus? You know, I'm also putting a bit of my security in uh, a relationship or some finances or this dream of a bigger house or these right schools for my kids or this, you know, uh, ambition that I hope one day will open up for me or the perfect body. Is that what we're living for? Because you might get it. You might get the six-pack. You might get the job. You might get the huge house with a swimming pool and a jacuzzi. But if you don't have Jesus, it won't be enough. It won't be enough. 
Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then the final question is this. If our purpose is in God's presence, what are your expectations? What are your expectations of what God can do as we draw close to him? And particularly perhaps for you as a community, you as a church, what are your expectations for what God can do as you gather here on a Sunday in the context of worship? Because I believe God is wanting to put within us a greater hunger and a greater sense of anticipation for what he can and wants to do in our midst. But he's looking for us to seek him, to hunger for more. There is so much more that he wants to bless us with. But for some of us, we need to think bigger to raise the level of expectation. You know, I often think there are kind of two types of worshippers. There's the thermometer worshippers and the thermostat worshippers. And thermometer worshippers are the kind who sort of rock up to church and, you know, if the band sound good and they're playing all the right songs, you've got your favorite drummer on the kit, and, uh, you know, actually everyone else seems really, yeah, people are really singing this and quite a few hands in the air and, you know, yeah, I'll join in. But your level of uh, engagement in worship is dependent on the kind of the temperature of the room. Or there are thermostat worshippers who are those who are so full of gratitude for all that God has done, who've been fueling themselves throughout the week so that when they step in on a Sunday, it's like, God, I'm going to worship you, even if the band sounds horrific, even if they sing that terrible song I absolutely hate, I'm going to give you my all because you're worth it. And you just begin to pour out praise, pour out thanksgiving, you know, adoration. And as you do, the whole atmosphere in the room begins to change and God begins to move. You know, amazing to think about the difference that could happen here on a Sunday if all of you came ready, excited, and you think about all those who drift in on a Sunday. Maybe you're here today and you're not quite sure about this God thing, this faith thing, or you're not sure if this is a community you want to get plugged into, but you see, like I did when I was 11 years old, a group of people passionate about this person, this relationship. It will change everything. We have just begun to see... um, moments in our worship where God does so much more than just, you know, a good time of singing, a few excited moments of emotion, real radical change. We did this uh, event, Worship Central event in Bristol a while ago, and during the worship, we were kind of um, worshiping away, and someone had a sense that God wanted to bring healing and so we kind of stopped the worship. It was all a little bit messy and awkward. But we said, look, if you want to come forward, if you want prayer for healing, just come, just come. And a whole bunch of people came forward. We prayed for them. And then we carried on worshiping and we, we left and kind of had no idea really what had happened. Um, about a year ago, I received a letter or an email from a lady telling me the story of her daughter. Her daughter, Anna, when she was eight years old, came rushing into her room one morning and her face had dropped, she was um, convulsing, she was drooling, and her speech was incoherent. And uh, the parents rushed her to hospital, and they did huge amounts of sort of extensive tests. It was very touch and go. And um, what, what came about was that she had a very severe form of epilepsy. And they said that actually the truth is, you're going to um, have to live with this for the rest of your life. And the mother described the kind of the, 
the pain of, sort of watching her daughter fit, sort of having, feeling terrified of having to be rushed out to um, the school or rushed to hospital to find her, to meet her. And uh, they'd been living like that for about two years when her mother brought Anna, who's now 10, to an event we were doing in Bristol. And during the worship, we uh, had some space and time for healing. And Anna's mum said she just saw her daughter bolt to the front and say to this lady, she said, I'm, I've got epilepsy. I don't want it anymore. And this lady, we don't know who she was, just laid a hand, just quietly prayed. And that was it. And then uh, Anna's mum said as she was driving her home, she was thinking, how do I communicate this thing that sometimes people don't get healed and this kind of tension that we live in when we think about healing. Why do some get healed and then others not? And <coughs> She didn't want Anna's hopes almost um, to get too up. And then she wrote this email, and this is in Anna's mum's own words. Of course, after that night, there's no big signpost arrives in the sky that says, don't panic, that was the last one. It's a slow day by day, hoping and praying and watching and fearing and hoping again. Every single day is a little miracle that gets ticked off. One year, two years, get ticks off. Last Christmas, Anna began being weaned off her medication. This September, she was officially signed off by the pediatrician consultant. And this week, we celebrate three full clear years of health. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, what scares me about that story is that we could have so easily missed that. Because if my expectations had just been about a great time of singing, you know, the band sounding fantastic, and we worked really hard on the arrangements and the visuals, and, you know, I got all these amazing ad-libs prepared, and, you know, guitar solos, and, you know, all of that stuff. We could have missed a girl being healed, and I met her, she's now 14, I met her a couple of months ago. Amazing girl. We could have missed her being healed, her family being radically transformed because I didn't want to mess up a guitar solo. You know, I want, when we gather at church, to be fully expecting for God's presence to be manifest. And when he turns up, lives are changed, people are healed, people find perspective, people find Christ. And I want to encourage you. Go for it. Go for it. Allow God to grab your heart, to set it on fire. Allow God to walk with you every day of your week in your life because there's nothing like it. There is nothing like it. All the money in the world, becoming the sixth member of um, One Direction, none of it, none of it, none of it will come close to knowing and being known by the Savior of the world. Why don't we pray? And I don't know if Pete and maybe the cellist <coughs> could come and just begin to play. Not that we need the music, but actually there's something beautiful in it that just unlocks something. And just where we are, <coughs> as they begin to play, what I'd love us to do is just to invite God. He's been here meeting with us, but just to invite God to come into the depths of our hearts. So Lord, would you pour out your spirit? Would you fill us afresh? And would you 
Speak to the depths of who we are. Pray for fresh revelation. Open eyes to see you, to see your beauty, your worth, your glory, your majesty, your kindness, your love. And one of the things I uh, just had a picture during the worship is of um, someone kind of hanging off a cliff. It was like a branch, and they were hanging off with one hand. And they were terrified. They thought, if I let go, I'm going to crash on the rocks. But actually, no, what was going to happen is as you let go, you were beginning to soar and to fly. And I think there are some people here that maybe you're holding on to something a relationship or a career, a dream, financial security, your health. And today God is inviting you just to let go, to let go, to stop trying in your own strength, to allow him in, to allow him to carry you. And maybe actually even, why don't we all do this? Why don't we just clench our fists, hold our fists in a ball, and just think of those things that maybe we're holding on to. Maybe those fears or those uncertainties or those things that we're struggling perhaps to let God into. To fully trust Him. To fully believe that God, God's ways are best. And then maybe as you feel ready, just begin to open out your fist. And just say, come, Lord, I give it to you. I don't want to hold it any longer. I want you.